0: Hello, it's Wednesday the 28th of June 2017 at one o'clock Eastern time and this is Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators in higher education. I am your host Heather Shea from Michigan State University. On today's live broadcast I'm talking with four panelists about study abroad, trends and issues for student affairs. Before I introduce my guests I need to give a quick shout out to the folks who make these free webcasts possible. Student Affairs Live is a part of the Higher Ed Live Network our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge. And you can participate in today's discussion by tweeting us using the hashtag HigherEdLive. Thanks to my friend, colleague, and recent graduate of the MSU Student Affairs Administration Program, Alex Sylvester, who is once again moderating our back channel today. As you all know, our episodes are free and easy to access. You can go to our archives. You can also subscribe to our podcast and subscribe to our newsletter to find out more. Today's episode is made possible by our sponsor, ACPA, College Student Educators International. Support for Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways the ACPA provides innovative professional development. You can visit myacpa.org to discover other personal and professional development opportunities. Hybrid Live is also produced by mStoner, a digital-first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. An accessible site is usable by everyone, and it is time to make accessibility a priority. A checkup with mStoner will provide you with actionable information to help you comply with legal requirements and improve site performance and access for all users. If you're interested in learning more about this offering from mStoner, we are tweeting out a link now. So now on with the episode. Um, As some of you know, I was recently in Europe, co-leading a three-week study abroad program primarily for teacher education majors at Michigan State. This transformational experience, both for myself and for student participants, uh, prompted today's episode. One thought that I keep returning to as I was reflecting is how much I relied upon my student affairs background in engaging with students, responding to student concerns, and addressing crises. And this made me wonder what opportunities exist for intentional partnerships, what are already happening um, on other campuses between student affairs educators, international education administrators, faculty, and others. So this is hopefully one of the topics that we're going to explore today as we talk about study abroad. Um, Before I introduce the panelists uh, who will discuss this more, I want to make just a quick statement about context and where and who on who we have centered today's conversation. Um, we are largely exploring the experiences of U.S. students who participate in study abroad experiences outside the U.S., um, but we recognize that that is not the only way that international education happens and that it is far more complex. Um, my friend and colleague, Dr. Will Barrett, said in a response to a Facebook post, which I'm going to quote here because it's just awesome, He said, the center of our worlds, sometimes geographic, are a starting place for each of us, and we all make the mistake of assuming that we are the center of our whole world. Becoming more cosmopolitan is, in many ways, about getting off-center, developing new centers, or enlarging the center. So it's my hope today that this episode contributes to a broader conversation about study abroad that's already happening, while keeping in mind that getting off-center, developing new centers, and enlarging our center is an important end goal of study abroad and indeed our student affairs practice. So today, we have a, an incredible panel with a range of experiences and perspectives. So joining me are Dr. Elena Pawlowskis Crane. Hi, Elena. Hi. Dr. Stephen First. Hi, Stephen. Hi there. Dr. Lisa Landerman. Hi, Lisa. Hello. And Dr. Elizabeth Niehaus. Hello. So as you all are introducing yourselves, um, talk a little bit about your current role on your campus and any other affiliate roles you have recently served in with uh, associations or organizations, your research interests, et cetera. And then I would specifically like to hear about any personal study abroad experiences you've had as as a leader or as an undergrad and how that has shaped your work and practice um, in the field. So, Lena, we're gonna start with you.
1: Sure. My name is Lena Kavalowskis-Crane. I'm at the University of Maryland College Park, where I work in student conduct. Uh, I also identify as an international educator. Uh, I'm the past chair of the ACPA Commission for Global Dimensions of Student Development. And uh, at the University of Maryland, I also teach short-term study abroad courses. Um, I've done so for a number of years in five countries, Qatar, the UAE, Spain, the Netherlands, and Australia. Um, my research interests are also in the area of international education, specifically cross-border transitions uh, and the relationship between culture, pedagogy, and cognition. So how the way our culture affects the way that we teach and learn. Thank you.
0: Great. Thanks, Lena. Stephen, tell us a little bit about, about you.
2: Thank you. Uh, my name is Stephen First. I'm at the College of Staten Island. Uh, my study abroad happened purely by accident. Uh, as an undergraduate, I was somewhat lost and an advisor said, I, need, I know what you need and that's to go abroad. Uh, I did that after um, about uh, a semester abroad. I came back, still didn't know what I was doing, but graduated uh, and was asked if I wanted a job, sit down and answer phones. Uh, That started a 30 plus year career, uh, much of it in study abroad, and now I deal with all international aspects of the campus, uh, dealing with our international students, dealing with our outbound students, uh, dealing with all of our uh, priorities. Uh, But I will say that one experience that semester abroad uh, has uh, completely changed the focus of my life and has uh, created essentially not just my career but, uh, you know, all of the passions that that I hold today.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Stephen. Uh, Lisa, tell us a little bit about you.
3: Sure. My name is Lisa Landerman. I'm the Assistant Vice President for Student Life and Dean of Student Life at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. And my research interests have been around how folks uh, develop what I've called their critical intercultural consciousness. That was my dissertation work. But I've also looked at pedagogy that impacts learning, particularly around uh, democratic outcomes like cultural competency, intercultural consciousness, um, effective facilitation of these outcomes. And uh, also when I was on a study abroad, did a, a research project on how students developed a global perspective. And so my study abroad experience didn't happen as a student, but I had the good fortune three times I sailed with the Semester at Sea program. I was the Dean of Students twice, and most recently in spring 2016, sailed as the assistant executive dean and semester at sea for those who don't know is a three-month comparative global education program sponsored by colorado state with about 30 faculty and staff who travel around the world for a semester with students on a ship for 10 countries where the ship uh, operates as a campus and we do field programs with students and engage with them like we would on a college campus some of my other experiences have included helping students with pre-departure i do a lot of the training and work on different campuses around pre-departure preparation and also involved in sort of the crisis response for students who are experiencing crisis abroad and are having trouble or difficulty abroad and how we help support them from the home campus.
0: Great, thanks Lisa. Sure. Welcome. Thanks, Um, so my name is Bethany House. I'm an assistant professor
4: in educational administration at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and I'm also the um, immediate former faculty and residents for the ACPA uh, Commission for Global Dimensions of Student Development. Um, when I was an undergrad, I spent a semester in Spain and then also um, a summer in Mexico and Guatemala on an anthropology field school. Um, and that definitely has played a huge role in, in what I do today um, in terms of my research interests, my teaching, and just my sort of personal orientation towards the world. Um, And when I was a doctoral student, I also had the opportunity to teach study abroad courses in Qatar, the Czech Republic, Uganda, and the Netherlands, so um, sort of all around the world. Uh, My research um, focuses broadly on how educational environments facilitate learning and development for both faculty and students. Um, And right now I'm focusing on how faculty approach teaching short-term study abroad courses, and then also how these short-term faculty-led courses can be designed to maximize students' intercultural learning.
0: Great. So Elizabeth, going back to you really quickly, or Beth, um, what do we mean by study abroad? What does that term kind of encompass, and what kinds of um, experiences are we talking about?
4: So um, study abroad is a, a really big umbrella. Um, And actually, for those who aren't very familiar with the field, the education abroad has a really great glossary of terms that's helpful for understanding different types of study abroad experiences. Um, And I made sure to go to that uh, in thinking about the definition here so I wasn't just, you know, telling you what I think. Um, So study abroad, or even more broadly, education abroad really just refers to any sort of educational experience that takes place outside of your home country. Um, In the U.S., study abroad, typically refers to programs that involve academic credit, but not an entire degree program. Um, outside of the U.S., interestingly, study abroad often refers to going to a different country for an entire degree program. These shorter mm-hmm. semester, year, or even, you know, two to four-week programs are um, much less common outside of the U.S. Um, in the US, we typically refer to students who are outside of their home country for a degree program as international students. So there's definitely a terminology difference here. Um, but in the US, uh, like I said, there's a lot of different types of lengths and um, designs of study abroad experiences as uh, students can go abroad for an entire summer, a semester, or an academic year, either taking classes directly at a host institution alongside students from the host country or um, taking classes offered by their own institution or an independent study abroad provider. Um, and 10 years ago, about half of US students studying abroad did so for at least a quarter, so one or two quarters, a semester, or an academic year. Um, and now that number is down to just over a third. Um, much more common now in the US are shorter programs. Um, Currently, about 60% of US students who study abroad do so for eight weeks or fewer. And um, at least 15% do so for fewer than two weeks. So these much, much shorter uh, abroad experiences are becoming the norm. Um, But these can also take a lot of forms. So um, often they're faculty-led programs, though, where one or two faculty members accompany a small group of students uh, really focusing on a specific course. Um, but again, this broad umbrella of education abroad can also include things like um, international internships, service learning, research, language immersion, really anything where a student's going to a different country for an experience with specific learning goals.
0: Right. Yeah, the program that I led was definitely a faculty-accompanied three-week experience, so um, that resonates with me. So, Lisa, last week on Student Affairs Live, my wonderful co-host, Tony Doody, spoke with a panel about high-impact practices, of which study abroad is one of many. Mm -hmm. Um, George Koo, who um, I think is probably most well-known for using the words high-impact practice, uh, said that um, hips or high-impact practices share several traits, so they demand considerable time and effort. They facilitate learning outside of the classroom, require um, meaningful interactions with faculty and students, encourage collaboration with diverse others, and provide frequent and substantive feedback. Um, And so as a result of that, we we note that students are often um, transformed or have life-changing experiences Mm -hmm. um, as a result of studying abroad. Um, Many of these kind of experiences are grouped under the words global competencies. Mm -hmm. So, What would you define global competency as, and how do you see this demonstrated within study abroad?
3: Sure. So I think when I think about global competency, I think about what does that student look like? So when I say a student is globally competent, and so I think it's a student who understands that their own identities is embedded in a complex history that goes beyond the borders of any nation, that they have the capacity to analyze and think critically about global and intercultural issues that they consider multiple perspectives at any problem or worldview that they might have, that they um, use judgment um, or refrain from judgment uh, without critically examining uh, with critical reflection of what they're looking at, um, that they are engaged, open, and curious to um, people, cultures, ideas different from their own, um, and that they have a shared respect for human dignity and that they'll apply that knowledge, attitudes, and skills, hopefully toward the common good. I think that's something that I would add that might not necessarily be inherent in what we what we see as global competency. But I think for many of us who are encouraged study abroad, that the I would say a goal would be that what we see demonstrated is the application of this new worldview and this transformation. So, I, I've seen that play out in how students investigate the world and with with new lenses and new eyes. I've seen them really grapple with new ideas, behaviors, concepts in light of what they're learning about themselves. Um, I've seen students communicate in languages that they didn't have but or without common language but most importantly I've seen students take action both abroad and on campus that has been in light of their study abroad experience and I would say Those are kind of a Western view, I would say, of of global competency. I'd be remiss if I didn't share kind of a really great learning I had on one of my voyages, two of my voyages with uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who talked about the concept of Ubuntu and talks about how my humanity is entwined with your humanity. And that, to me, is the essence of global competency.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Other, other perspectives on global competency that you all might want to share? I think it's a good question to kind of get everyone in.
4: I think that that concept of Ubuntu was a really good one and one that I've seen come out of study abroad. Um, when I uh, took a group of students to the Czech Republic, I remember uh, a student saying when we came back that she had been talking with her family about it and they said something about Czechoslovakia. And she was personally offended by this because she was like, no, it's the Czech Republic. And she explained to me that it just, it seemed so personal to her because she knew people and she felt connected to people in another country now that before it had just been, you know, this space on a map. And now that it was this real place and most importantly, real people. And I think, like Lisa said, that's, that's really the heart of, of global competence. There's a lot more that goes into it, but that's the heart of it. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Stephen, as someone who oversees these types of programs, um, maybe you can also weigh in on what you see it as, but then how do we know? How, you know, what kinds of assessments have we found to be effective at measuring students' global competency?
2: Of course. I, it's, it's a difficult question, actually, uh, to, to pinpoint what's most effective, um, and there are a number of competing tools. I'll, I'll talk about some of those. Um, you know, I agree that, you know, the issue of global competency Uh, Can be measured in so many different ways and for so many different people it means uh, different things although it it, you know to me has always meant um, your ability to see yourself in uh, In the universe see your your role in the universe in the world and and what that means and how you interrelate Uh, And that's probably the most important part, but in terms of you know actual tools um, I think lots of people are probably familiar with the IDI which is the intercultural development inventory um, quite a quite a famous one that you can do a pre and a post test. Um, the Global Competencies Inventory. Uh, there's a cross-cultural adaptability inventory. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 acronyms go on. Uh, intercultural sensitivity inventory. You know, there there are a whole lot of these. Um, what's what's striking to me um, is not which of the tools is most effective in measuring it, because I think they're all you know very. Um, They're they're very valid and reliable tools. They've been tested uh, over and over again. We know that they are measuring something, not always knowing what they are measuring, but we know that they're consistent in that. Um, But what's important is that in order to actually move on any of these scales, the research is showing that you have to have more than just an exposure. So going abroad, doing the three-week, doing the five-week program, uh, doing the two-year program, length of time isn't always as important as is the actual um, having some reflective experience, putting that experience in it. And many of our programs uh, that many of us run around the world have built in these mechanisms, whether they are journals or whether they are uh, other pieces of, uh, of reflection that really reinforce what that position is in the world. Those are the ones that help you move along those scales, whichever one you choose.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. We had our students um, go on hours alone and then do a video log reflecting upon that, that experience because oftentimes the students are in a group and they spend all their time with their group. And so that was one of the ways that we were hoping for them to explore. And those videos are, are definitely interesting uh, to hear how students are growing and changing. Um, so, Lena, as your experience, talk a little bit about how you work to foster global competencies as a faculty member um, teaching study abroad courses.
1: Sure, sure. I think the biggest thing is to be thoughtful about aligning students' experiences in country and, and pre-departure and re-entry as well. Um, aligning the experiences that that they have with the outcomes that you hope to produce um, as a program facilitator. Um, And the how we do that is a pretty extensive list, but again, from pre-departure discussions to the in-country reflections and experiences to the the processing that happens after re-entry, we hope that that students will do a few things um, related to global competence. And we hope that they will develop an understanding of their perceptions and their biases and their identities, um, promote openness to different ways of thinking, new ways of thinking, um, be empathetic and and humble, um, and also recognize different approaches to problem solving, just as a few examples. Um, I am thoughtful uh, about the language that I use as well. For example, um, especially with short-term study abroad programs, students might perceive that it's a trip, you know. um, And I tell them, no, you go on a spring break trip to the beach. You you don't do, uh, there's not a a learning component necessarily, and so this is a study abroad course, a study abroad program. if I had to sum it up, I would say, as as students experience things like, wow, you know, the wait staff in Spain really take their time, or wow, there's no crime in the UAE. Um, and, and some of the feelings that are inherent in those observations, um, I repeat so, so many times, um, it's not good, it's not better, it's not worse, uh, it's not bad, it's just different. And so um, that combination of, of kind of processing their experiences and feelings, and making sure that their experiences align with, with the outcomes that we hope will result from education abroad.
2: I think what Linda said there is really important, you know, that we, we often use the same line, you know, it's not right or wrong, it's just different, um, but it's also important to have the students talk about why it's different, and to express why it's different, particularly if you can work it into your, your local course. Um, You know based on what's happening whether you are are talking about attitudes of brexit in ireland and how that's going to affect things um, Or whether you're talking about the waitstaff, you know, that is a teachable moment. Yes, it does take long Yes If you snap your fingers that is something offensive even though you're just calling for the check Mm -hmm. Um, You know and what does that mean and why you know, why does it take so long to get a check why do you get to sit there for two and a half hours before you're getting shuffled out of the restaurant? And, and those are important things that then allow somebody to come back and say, wait, maybe the cultural assumptions I've lived under for the past 18, 19, 20, 30 years aren't exactly the right ones. And that's where I think the learning really becomes important. Yeah.
3: And if I could, I I think that this really ties into the high-impact practice conversation that folks who haven't seen from last week's Higher Ed Live around it's about the impact of the impactful practitioner or educator who can make the difference. To me, it's the difference between study abroad with trained faculty and staff who can help engage students in that kind of reflection that makes the difference. It's not just going abroad. I mean, I'm not saying some learning can't happen that way, but the true essence is people can really pull out and take advantage of those teachable moments, create structure, and is resp- someone responsible and ha- is mindful of the learning outcomes of the activities and the experience we're trying to create that makes the difference.
0: Yeah, I think um, Dr. Matthew Mayhew. Yes, he did. <laughs> uh, it's not about the high-impact practice. It's about the high-impact pract- Practitioner. Practitioner. Um, which I think actually links to my next question because, as I mentioned, I think there's a, a, a little bit of an interesting kind of disconnect, and, and perhaps there are logical connection points on other campuses that I just haven't witnessed here necessarily. Um, but when we think about this and we think about um, engaging students around global competency, um, really reflecting and integrating and engaging, um, a number of conditions might be important. Um, so Beth, can you talk a little bit about the design and, and perhaps maybe that's where the link with student affairs um, might come in? Definitely. So interestingly,
4: there's not a ton of research on program design. I mean, not none. There's there's bits and pieces of it here in the, the study abroad literature. But um, I think that where I find the most information about what is really um, important in designing study abroad programs is from some of the related student affairs literature. So things on experiential education, intercultural contact, service learning. Um, all of these uh, bodies of literature can really point to what's likely to be really effective in study abroad. Um, so, like Leva and Stephen, I think we we're both commenting on before, there's particular design elements that are unique to study abroad um, that not that one is better than the other, but Um, that you need to align with what your intended outcomes are. So um, the length of the program, the location of the program, right? So things um, are going to, the possibilities are very different in a week-long service learning course in Uganda versus a semester in England, right? Just the possibilities are different. Um, the types of, you know, housing and transportation that you use, all of those things that are really just the logistical pieces um, are important to think about in designing the course, um, but they all, um, all of these options tend to be um, effective if utilized properly or, or, or facilitated well, like folks were just talking about. Um, and then looking at that broader literature, I think there's a few things that really emerge in what, um, what the literature points to in terms of the ways that um, you know those facilitating study abroad experiences can maximize learning. So obviously the immersion in the host culture, opportunities to interact with people different from you, but also you know, opportunities to experience the environment, eat the local food, learn some of the local language if it's different from what you already speak, um, using local transportation. Um, these are all the types of experiences that we can be facilitating to promote global competence. But then a really important piece of it is, is what you all were just talking about in terms of the role of the educator. Um, in the Edinburgh world, we often talk about um, cultural mentoring, which is this umbrella term that really encompasses a lot of what educators are doing um, to be guides, to help students navigate and make of cultural differences. Um, So, in the work that I'm doing, looking at how faculty approach teaching short-term study abroad courses, um, I found that there's sort of these types of cultural mentoring that faculty are doing, and to varying degrees, but um, I find them helpful in thinking about what cultural mentoring means. Um, So, some of what this includes is helping students set expectations for their experience. What do they expect of the study abroad experience? What do they expect the host culture to be like? What do they expect of themselves and how they'll react to the host culture? Um, Explaining the host culture, so when students experience something that they don't understand, um, that faculty member or other educator sitting down with them and saying, okay, like she was saying, let's think about why. What's going on here? Um, And what can I tell you about my experience that helps you understand this? Um, Helping students explore their own identities and how that's interacting with the host culture. So what assumptions are they making, but then also how are they being perceived by people in the host culture? Um, through any number of of their identities. Um, And then also helping students uh, make connections between different things they're learning in that host culture, and then also um, between their prior experiences and what they're experiencing in country. Um, And those are all really important pieces of what educators can be doing. Um, And then there's also opportunities for guided reflection, like people have noted uh, both written and discussion reflection. And the service learning literature tells us that these Two forms of reflection are actually quite different and and help students process in different ways. And then, of course, just solid pedagogical practices that we see, you know, similar to the high impact practice literature. You know, things like active and collaborative learning, integrative learning, service learning, and other community-based pedagogies. Those can all be um, really integrated into study abroad experiences to maximize their, their efficacy.
0: So your research, I'm I'm curious if you have uncovered this this kind of disconnect or concept that you know faculty are there are there student affairs skills and competencies that faculty who lead study abroad programs need to have that they currently don't have or you know how and and how can we kind of form those more intentional or or do they already have them and I'm just making a, a like a terrible assumption?
4: <laughs> well, you know there is a lot of variance in that, right? There are some faculty members who are totally prepared, know about, you effective facilitation, reflection, experiential learning. You know, there there are people who who have that background um, for any number of paths through which they came to being a professor. Um, But there's also a lot of people who don't. Um, What I found is there's definitely variation in that by discipline. Um, Not surprisingly, folks in um, STEM, business, health sciences fields, not all of them. I I don't mean to say all STEM faculty, you know, are, you know, can't facilitate uh, reflection, but there are some trends that those folks are less likely to engage in cultural mentoring and reflection when teaching study abroad. Um, And there was actually another study that was in the Frontiers Journal, which is a study abroad journal, um, a few years ago on faculty course leaders. Um, that I actually inspired a lot of the research that I'm doing. Um, And what they found was that, uh, you know, one of the roles that faculty conceptualized was uh, what they call the dean of students role in teaching study abroad courses. So that was dealing with interpersonal dynamics and group dynamics, mental and physical health, safety, discipline, drug and alcohol use, all of this stuff that, I mean, I would say faculty just generally don't deal with day-to-day in teaching classes. Not that we don't see these things, but, If I'm on campus teaching a class and I encounter one of these issues, even as a student affairs faculty, I refer to someone else, right? Like, not my purview. But teaching study abroad, often there's no one that I can refer that person to. Um, And in my own research, I did find that the majority of faculty I surveyed said that they had these roles. Um, Although, I was really surprised by how many of the folks who responded to my survey said that they were prepared for that. I suspect some folks may have been overestimating their preparation, but um, folks are at least feeling generally prepared in in my research, except when it came to mental health. Um, There was the biggest disconnect between um, what folks were doing and what they felt prepared to do when it came to addressing mental health needs that they might encounter abroad. Um, And so I'm right now working on a qualitative follow-up where we interviewed I think 13 faculty members about their experiences with mental health teaching study abroad. And their experiences ranged from, you know, um, homesickness and uh, stress, everything to you know, anxiety, bipolar disorder, suicidal ideation. We had a couple folks who had students say to them, you know, what do you think would happen if I jumped off this bridge? Um, but that was actually an example that someone told us about in in this project. And most of these folks don't really know what to do with it, and it's it's incredibly stressful. It can totally derail the entire experience. Um, and anyway, know, I didn't look at this specifically, but I also suspect that a lot of folks aren't as prepared as they could be for some of those cultural mentoring and reflection roles, um, and these are things that, that student affairs folks deal with day-to-day. This is our role on campus, so I think there's a lot of opportunity for partnerships. Um, you can't expect an individual faculty member to know how to do all of this, to teach their content, to be a cultural mentor, to guide reflection, to deal with crises that arise. That's just way too much for one person. And I think just saying, oh, well, faculty need more training that, you know, student affairs could provide isn't the answer, because I already hear people, faculty saying, there's so much administrative burden, so many trainings, so much stuff I have to do, I just might not do this anymore. So I think really it's partnerships. It's bringing student affairs folks along. On the, on the study abroad trips, if that's not logistically or financially viable, finding ways to virtually connect. But finding ways that we can be working together, that faculty and student affairs practitioners can, can all come together to work on these programs so that you're not putting everything on just that one or even two people who are leading, say, a short term course. Um, but I'd love to hear what other folks think yeah. in terms of how do we how do we make this bridge? How do we connect? Um, those running study abroad courses and student
2: affairs folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't mind echoing that for a moment just to say that, you know, one of the things that I think is often um, uh, often not realized about a study abroad program is that you are essentially running a mini college or university for those students. You have admissions to the programs. You have the academic portion that you're teaching, you're providing the library, you're providing all the student services, you're providing all the housing, you're providing literally anything that will often billing the student's collection, doing the registrar's functions, all the functions that happen on campus happen in a study abroad office. And what we often find is that we say, well, a faculty member will take care of that. Or, oh, well, we've got the study abroad office and that faculty running that short-term program. It'll be fine. Except that all of that structure that we put in place to get our universities to run efficiently and properly uh, and to serve the students is missing. Uh, and I think that you're absolutely right in that. There, there's not enough recognition that we need to build those bridges, that we need to have people either on-call or on-site or partnering with folks to do so.
4: Mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to just throw one other thing here is that uh, most of what I look is these fac- as these faculty led short term courses, but I think there's similar issues and challenges with longer term courses because or or programs. Sorry, Your student goes abroad for a semester and is you know taking classes at a university abroad. Well, student affairs and services looks very different in other countries, and so students might be expecting or be used to or be needing some of the supports that they typically have on campus here in the US, and that just might not be something that's typically provided at that institution. And again, like cultural differences, that's not good or bad or better or worse, it just is the way that higher ed works differently in other countries, but then these are still our students. And so how are we, you know, again, bringing those services that students might need and expect from the home campus abroad, or should we be, you know, there's a good question there.
3: And I would add to that, in, in, a, in addition to um, the pre- these preparation of these very practical issues or mental health issues, is that even though it's an international experience, people are bringing their identities and they're to these abroad experiences. And these identities aren't necessarily salient where they are abroad. So I think a lot about our students of color who, when we traveled to Africa, particularly African-American students, who were, had some expectation about how they would be received in africa and actually they were seen as american they were seen you know and the disconnect of feeling like i don't feel like i belong in the u.s based on my race but i don't i i'm i'm not accepted there either and the emotional sort of significance of that i i don't know where i belong who am i how do i define myself Is a whole other piece of preparation for the faculty and staff to understand the dynamics of identity. Where in a home campus, they might be able to talk about that in the multicultural affairs office or with particular faculty. But again, with a, you know, faculty aren't thinking about, they're thinking about cultural differences in a way that's really different than the student who they're bringing their full selves or around disability issues. You know, accessibility isn't great in the U.S. many places, but it really is difficult, you know, in other places that where there's stairs and cobblestone roads or dirt roads or, um, you, you know, there isn't microphone amplified. And so I've seen those challenges as well where I aren't thought of in advance about how a student might be able to fully participate in the study abroad position, and someone without that Quick thinking and flexibility. Michael, I haven't even thought about that, or I don't even know how to respond to that. So again, there's this identity piece that I think is also I would add to the lack of preparation that impacts learning and the experience for students and the stress for those administering programs.
0: Mm-hmm. Lena, you work in student conduct, um, so I'm, I'm definitely interested in how those that functional area in particular might. Um, intersect, um, and and then any other thoughts you have on other ways that uh, student affairs should connect?
1: Sure, sure. I think that's uh, the area of conduct and risk management is an increasing partnership um, between international ed folks and student services folks. Um, the way uh, at the University of Maryland, the way we do it, for example, um, we, we do a lot with faculty pre-departure preparation for some of the reasons that you all identified. You know, the, you're expected to be a, a one or two person campus effectively and, and doing a lot of things that faculty might be inexperienced with or even uncomfortable with and so saying uh, what do you do um, in the absence of an immediate referral, uh, how do you mitigate some things uh, you know, prior to the program, and then also uh, on site, how do you respond. Um, so we do a lot of training in that area. We also do a lot of um, outreach to students as well, talking about behavioral expectations, both academic and non-academic, um, because a lot of campuses have the expectation that uh, you are uh, the student of your campus no matter where you go. So the code of conduct, for example, would would apply perhaps universally. Uh, but what does that mean uh, what, if you're expected to adhere to a certain uh, drinking age or, or expectation in a place where the drinking age might be different or uh, where the local laws, I think of Singapore where where there is a, a unique law about chewing gum and, and some students are, that that's unexpected. And so um, how do we prepare students and encourage them to do their own research uh, so that we can uh, address uh, some behavioral things. There are also some systematic things that we do, kind of procedural things. Uh, For example, we do uh, a student conduct uh, history check before students are accepted for study abroad, and and those are some steps, again, that that play a part in risk management, but again, are such logical opportunities for partnerships between student services uh, and international ed.
0: So I want to shift um, the conversation a a little bit and to talk a little bit about access, because I think one of the, Other conversations that often happens around study abroad is is who gets to participate in this high-impact practice Um, and NASA uh, which Stephen will tell me exactly what the acronym is no longer but it means
2: the Association of International Educators
0: thank you Um, so NASA reports that as many as 81% want to go but only actually 1% go each year um, and so, largely, access to study abroad remains kind of a privilege of white, upper-class uh, students. So, can you talk a little bit about, Stephen, like the ways that your campus has worked to increase access as well as your work with NAFSA?
2: Sure, sure. Uh, so, it is true that uh, we still see that study abroad is dominated by females uh, and by white, upper-middle-class females in particular. Uh, probably to the tune of about 65 plus percent, uh, certainly on the male-female ratio. Um, the debate has been raging for, for years and years, and it's been hard to really move the needle in some of, uh, some of those categories that we define in the U.S. Uh, and the barriers are, are really myriad. I mean, there's everything from the culture, uh, whether there's a culture in your family, for example, to travel, to leave, Um, whether you do travel more than 30 miles from your family at any time, uh, or whether you have family obligations, whether they are, um, working and providing for the family, uh, or whether they are simply, no, you're just part of this family and that's what we do. We stick close together. We don't go off and, and, uh, you know, spend time around the world. So some of it's just cultural. Uh, there's of course a financial barrier in there. Uh, although, more and more, we're able to overcome that. Um, there are some scholarship programs uh, that are working on. Uh, one that has uh, been tossing around in the Senate for a little while uh, is the Simon Study-Broad Act. Uh, Of course, that's a a large-scale product uh, of of Senator Paul Simon's imagination um, that we hope to bring to reality. That would be something rivaling uh, what you probably know as Fulbright. So it would be an undergraduate Fulbright program. It would give scholarships to students looking to study abroad. Um, But many of the barriers are simply academic. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, if you ask any of the folks on the panel about the faculty who are involved in study abroad, you'll find that they can name 10, 20, 30 faculty who are interested. Um, But of course, we all have 2,000 faculty on our campus. And, you know, it's the small percentage that really feel that this is an academic endeavor. And I think, you know, if I had one point to to kind of hammer home, whether it's, you know, on student affairs or on the academic side, it's really that study abroad has to be built into the culture of the campus. And once you build it into the culture of the campus, whether it's putting it directly into a major or whether it's uh, just showing that, well, this is what everybody does, this is part and parcel of what it's like uh, to be a student here, some of those other barriers fall away very quickly. Students find the funds to go. Students get scholarships. Students work on their academic career so that they don't have things that. Bang into each other and and don't allow a student to go abroad. Um, you know you're you're at MSU's campus and of course you guys have great participation rates there. I was talking uh, recently to an MSU graduate about you know who studies abroad and she said well everybody studies abroad. Uh, And I said, well surely not everyone studies abroad. Uh, She goes, no, no, everybody I know studied abroad. And Now your participation rates are probably in the 20% range. Um, That's only one in five, that's certainly not everybody. Um, But because it's in the culture, because it is one in five, um, it seems as though everybody is doing it. And that really has an effect on how to lower those barriers and that's really, once we can change culture on campus, is how we're going to increase the participation rates, you know, across, move it away from just the, you know, the, the females, just the upper middle class white uh, students into, you know, the, the wide range of students that we have on all of our campuses.
0: Yeah, I think your point about embedding it in curriculum is really important as well. Many of the students who participated in the program that I co-led were from our global educators cohort, uh, which requires a, a study abroad uh, to graduate. So um, I think that's a, an interesting um, observation for sure. Um, so Lena, in ACPA with the Commission on um, Global Dimensions of Student Development, I think student development, I, I think I got that right. Um, can you talk a little bit about access and partnership? And then how does like, ACPA's um, very public social justice mission kind of interrelate to this a- idea of access?
1: That's a great question, Um, and through the the Commission for Global Dimensions, we constantly seek to make sure that there are connections between student services and international education. Um, We have hosted programs and developed resources related to advising students for study abroad, um, how to address risk and some of the conduct issues that I mentioned earlier, uh, and, and while students are abroad as well and opportunities to serve the profession in international ed capacity, semester at sea, of course, is a a great example. Um, And the other part of your question, social justice relates deeply. Uh, We are also talking frequently about access, which is a big topic. There's, um, in the Open Doors report, it said that 73% of American students who are going abroad are are white, even though that same population is is about 50% of students enrolled in higher ed, and so that's disproportionate. And um, there are also inequities in other identity groups um, and underrepresented degree programs, which we've just touched on. also, the idea of non-traditional study abroad destinations, because that can also open up uh, the type and number of students who uh, would go abroad. Um, and in resources, we're, we're going to share a resource from NAFSA, and it's called Supporting Diversity in Education Abroad. And there are tabs based on some of those categories, so some that are identity-based, uh, some, that, some that are more programmatic, uh, and, and it's a real opportunity for, um, for student services folks to, to address some of those barriers. Um,
0: Right. So as a, personal, as a faculty member individually, um, what might those folks who are potent, potentially watching today who are thinking about this and really concerned, um, what, what are some of the things that they can do to increase access in an individual program?
1: Sure, sure. So faculty should create experiences that are inclusive of different identities um, and also of different academic interests and, and even experiential needs. Um, I would say uh, if you're looking solely to increase numbers and access uh, to offer both short-term and semester and year-long programs, more traditional programs, uh, offer scholarships to increase financial access uh, for underrepresented students, uh, and then work on with, with staff uh, across departments to Address some of the access and outcomes pieces. And I think that campuses can, including faculty, can discuss those barriers with students and and back that up with resources. Like some students perceive they can't study abroad because they're a STEM major and won't be able to find their technical courses, but there are entire organizations that exist solely to connect. STEM programs so that students can stay on track academically you know, around the world. Um, and other students think that they, won't, that they won't be safe or that they have to have language fluency or that they're going to miss out on student government elections while they're away and those again are real opportunities for student services folks to debunk some myths and then the, the backing it up with resources piece means that you want to invest in students' ability to go abroad. Uh, you want to train student services folks to recognize that, that this international mission is all of our work, you know, not just the three people in, in your study abroad office. Um, and, and again, really emphasizing partnerships between faculty, staff, uh, both on the student services and um, international side.
0: So, Lisa, when, when we think about the experience itself, there's, there's obviously this post-component um, or what happens when students return home. Um, so I'd love for you to kind of speak a little bit more about maybe this is an, a natural connection point for student affairs um, to think about like how do we interact with students as they're returning home and make some of those intentional ties. Mm-hmm.
3: I, I think it's a, a great point. And particularly since um, I, I think we haven't shared the experience with them. We do a lot of, I think, a lot of really great work getting them ready to go and, and talk to them when they're there. But we've done a a lot of this when i was on our voyage we spent a you know a week to, you know talking about students as they're leaving our voyage after 100 days away and the, the thing that we the, some of the things that we say is to prepare them is uh people aren't going to be as interested in all the stories that you want to tell like people's attention span to see all their photos and hear all their stories um, is a lot less and you know the number one question we get asked is you know, what was your favorite monument? What was your favorite country? And you kind of go, are, are, you, are you kidding me? I, you know, like favorite, best, you know, and then five minutes later, they're going, oh, but you missed a really great party while you were gone. And it just can be deflating about, you have no idea what I experienced and, I, and you're talking about that I missed, you know, that on campus. So this disconnect between, I'm a changed person, can't you see it? <laughs> and the reality of that life where they left went on without them, it uh, can be really difficult. I think some other issues. Uh, again, the places where I've gone on, uh, you know, on my travels with students has been uh, places that don't have a lot of the resources that, and so to come home and be inundated with the consumerism and the capitalism and uh, just the excess of stuff. Um, Students have been debilitated. Uh, And I I say that, I use that word not uh, lightly in that from our Facebook group of students when they've returned and the ongoing conversations that we really try to set up support networks among the people from our voyage because uh, they aren't finding them on their campus, that the only people that I understand are other people who've, you know, done what they've done. And I think that that's a real missed opportunity. I think some campuses do a great job of providing support spaces or a welcome home lunch, you know, and try to do that. But, um, I think sometimes students aren't ready to make meaning of their experience immediately when they return either and then by the time they're having difficulty might not even recognize that it's related perhaps to their change in in purpose and lost direction but what do i want to do with my life like who who they fundamentally are for many is changed in ways about what I want to do with my life, what I want to study, what and or feeling like I shouldn't be studying. I should be out changing the world in some what might feel like an idealistic way. And so those are some of the, the challenges. Others that I've dealt with have experienced some trauma abroad. And as was mentioned earlier by Beth, like don't didn't have the mental health support while they were abroad. Perhaps students who've been sexually assaulted or experienced theft or other violence. Um, Unfortunately, I I would say every semester I've had students on my home campus have something and then when they come back, don't know how to talk about it or thought that that was over there. So knowing how to help students unpack some of those traumatic experiences can be difficult too. The guilt they feel about, uh, especially during homestays, about knowing that their homestay uh, financial support for the family, but they had some traumatic experience with the host family, it it becomes really, really complicated for them to even admit, to share, and then to know how we can best support them in those kinds of experiences. So those those are just a few, I think, of the issues I can think of. I'm sure others on the panel probably can think of some
4: others.
0: Yeah, Beth, you had some thoughts on, on, on some of this idea of integrating the learning concepts. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, so this is Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is this idea of integrative learning, particularly related to these shorter-term experiences. So before I started delving into Mm -hmm. study abroad, most of my research has been on alternative breaks, so these Mm short-term service learning immersions. And um, one of the things I looked at was how students were integrating learning related to their alternative breaks, so their experiences before, during, and after. Um, And I really drew from Jim Barber's work on integrative learning, and he Mm -hmm. talks about that integrative learning involves um, connection, application, and synthesis. Um, And so I use that to look at at students' experiences with alternative breaks in ways I think is really relevant to to study abroad too. So when students were coming back from these experiences, there were a lot of ways that they were were integrating learning, but um, there were so many missed opportunities. And they almost never talked about um, educators in any way being involved. But um, Jim writes about this in in his work on integrative learning, and I found it too that in interviewing students, Um, They were often engaging in integrative learning, like, during the research interview. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it really showed me how easy it is to facilitate integrative learning, at least in in very basic ways, um, just by asking students to do it, by asking students questions like, hey, how did your experience abroad relate to this class that you're taking, Mm -hmm. or to this community service thing that you're doing now, or, to the kind of job that you want. And really just having those conversations with students and um, doing that good reflective listening that um, our our basic counseling classes teach us, um, just in ways that help them think about um, how to connect their uh, study abroad experience to their lives back on campus. And I think that that's important both in maximizing the impact of the study abroad, especially these experiences. But even longer ones, um, but then also helping them deal with some of that re-entry adjustment. Helping them think about how they uh, can bring together their study abroad experience and their life back on campus, which has both stayed the same and gone on without them in ways that can be really confusing. I know I experienced that when I came back from my semester in Spain. Everything was the same and everything was different. And I was the same and I was different. and. Um, you know, I think I really missed a lot of opportunities at that time to sort of bring together those lives in ways that would help make that experience more meaningful to me. Um, and I've done that since, but it would have been really helpful to have someone just ask those, those really pointed questions and, and help me make that meaning. And I think that, that integrative learning is a good frame to, to think about as we talk with students about their experiences.
2: Mm-hmm. without a doubt and you know i think that probably most of the folks who are are watching our on um, the student affairs professional side um, often you know those in in study abroad offices feel on an island and it goes back to what we were saying before is you know have you integrated that study abroad office into the curriculum have you integrated it into the campus or is this just a an extra thing that happens that students can do and when it's just an extra thing and you don't integrate it, uh, you don't get that type of deep learning, you, you know the high-impact practice is almost wasted uh, and you, you know you don't get the students doing that reflection uh, and then you know that leads to lower participation rates, all of the problems um, are there. So you know my, my encouragement here would be for uh, student affairs professionals to you know to go gently Uh, to their colleagues and say you know we have some really neat things here that might you know help make the program more integrated into the campus Um, I know you know what you're doing but let's do this together Uh, and I think you'll find study abroad professionals very willing to uh, to hear that
3: Mm -hmm. and and I've also as as a student affairs professional connected to students who've gone I make a point to invite them into my office and say, just tell me, tell me more and just listen. And often they'll tell me this, the sound bite and I'm going, I want to hear more. And I just listen. And then I want to hear, you know, because they're they're used to sort of giving the 32nd version, the, the elevator speech of their experience, because usually that's all people can handle. And it's the rare experience where there's someone who really wants to be, you know, a guide for their learning journey in that way. And so I think it could be as simple as, I just want to listen. I just want to listen. And they, they may make those connections that Beth was talking about through that conversation, like that often happens with us as qualitative researchers. We don't have to be a researcher to facilitate that kind of deep reflection. It doesn't have to be a, a setting where it's a program we're bringing back. It could be one-on-one also, or our small ways, but I think those of us in our sphere of influence could make a difference.
0: I'm going to move to final thoughts and and, uh, resources. Uh, One I want to share that's kind of related to this topic that we're all talking about regarding returning home um, is an article, again, in that journal called Frontiers, the Interdisciplinary uh, Journal of Study Abroad um, by um, one of my faculty members here at Michigan State. His name is David Wong, and he wrote a piece kind of complicating that wasn't you know beyond it was great right so you know, how are we helping students talk about what their experiences were um, and that 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 phrase it was great um, you know that might not be a bad thing to to help unpack a little but also not underestimate that 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 that's maybe where students are at right then mm-hmm. in terms of talking about it so we're gonna we're gonna tweet that uh, resource but I'd love to hear what you all uh, would suggest that people look at um, in terms of resources. So maybe uh, 30 seconds or less, give your favorite resource, and then we'll make sure we put um, a comprehensive list on this, uh, this uh, episode's webpage for today. Um, Beth, we'll start with you.
4: Um, oh gosh, just one. Um, I'm going to cheat and do two. Um, <laughs> but I say, a book of intercultural competence. Um, about, which uh, Darla Dierdorf edited, and also um, a book called Student Learning Abroad, what our students are learning, what they're not, and what we can do about it, which is Vandenberg, Page, and Lou
0: Editors. Great. Cool. Uh, Lena, you want to go next?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, I'll dial it back and say if you're relatively new, if you're on the student services side and, and relatively uh, unfamiliar with education abroad trends, um, I would steer you to the, the IIE Uh, Open Doors report, it says who is going where, when, um, really, really interesting just as far as like trends and demographics. And then also the NAFSA resource that I mentioned earlier, um, addressing barriers to study abroad.
0: Excellent. Lisa?
3: So I'm going to cheat too. I would say anything written by Marsha Baxter Magolda about self-authorship and student learning. I think part of the challenge is that. Um, we don't understand how learning happens that it happens on a cognitive interpersonal interpersonal level And if we're not attending to all those levels learning won't happen regardless of the context So if we want intercultural learning to happen, we need to we need to understand how learning happens And so I would recommend a developmental model of intercultural maturity where that self-authorship model was applied to intercultural learning by uh, Pat King and Marcia baxter Magolda
0: Great and Steven
2: Sure. Well, I'm going to tell you all to uh, save up your pennies and go to the one, one of the many conferences, whether it's mm-hmm. NAFSA's conference, whether it's the Forum Education Abroad, whether it's uh, one of the Student Affairs Professional Conferences where people are talking about study abroad. Um, you can read all the books, uh, and all the ones that were mentioned are the right ones, uh, plus a, a shelf of others. You can get them all at the conferences. Um, but when you sit down and engage with some of these uh, folks who are doing it, uh, the, it really changes. Uh, It really changes your perspective on on, uh, how these things go. And then continue to save your pennies and go on a program yourself, as all of us Mm -hmm. have done. That will completely flip everything you thought. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, I want to absolutely echo that last remark because I don't know that I had any concept of what it was like until... I was first a participant and then mm-hmm. um, a co-leader. So, uh, thank you to all of you for all of your your feedback and your wisdom, and for sharing great resources. Uh, we, as I said, are are going to tweet out a couple, but then we'll post the entire list um, online. Uh, I just really learned a lot from this, and it was a it was a nice kind of cathartic processing for me to be able to have this right after my own <laughs> experience. So. Mm-hmm. Um, And, as always, we thank our program sponsors, ACPA and M. Stoner. Um, Tony and I will be back in July. We are still putting together episodes, so I don't have anything specific to announce. Um, But we will be back in July, and then we are also looking at lining up episodes for the fall. So if you have suggestions of topics that you would like to see, explore on Student Affairs Live, please send us your um, messages and you can always tweet us or direct message us um, as well. You can receive reminders about the episodes. We always put out a newsletter every Monday with that week's episodes um, by subscribing on the Higher Ed Live website, um, and you can also of course browse our archives at higheredlive.com. Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks again to the fabulous panelists and to everyone watching. Uh, make it a great week everyone.